0: Silas Marner by George Eliot Part Two, Chapter 17 While Silas and Eppie were seated on the bank, discoursing in the fleckered shade of the ash-tree, Miss Priscilla Lammeter was resisting her sister's arguments that it would be better to take tea at the Red House and let her father have a long nap, than drive home to the Warrens so soon after dinner. The family party, of four only, were seated round the table in the dark wainscoted parlour, the Sunday dessert before them, of fresh filberts, apples, and pears, duly ornamented with leaves by Nancy's own hand, before the bells had rung for church. A great change has come over the dark wainscoted parlor since we saw it in Godfrey's bachelor days, and under the wifeless reign of the old squire. Now all is polish, on which no yesterday's dust is ever allowed to rest from the yard's width of oaken boards round the carpet, to the old squire's gun and whips and walking-sticks, ranged on the stag's antlers above the mantelpiece. All other signs of sporting and outdoor occupation Nancy has removed to another room. But she has brought into the Red House the habit of filial reverence, and preserves sacredly in a place of honor these relics of her husband's departed father." The tankards are on the side-table still, but the bossed silver is undimmed by handling, and there are no dregs to send forth unpleasant suggestions. The only prevailing scent is of the lavender and rose-leaves that fill the vases of Derbyshire Spar. All is purity and order in this once dreary room, for fifteen years ago it was entered by a new presiding spirit. "'Now, Father,' said Nancy, Is there any call for you to go home to tea? Mayn't you just as well stay with us? Such a beautiful evening as it's likely to be. The old gentleman had been talking with Godfrey about the increasing poor rate and the ruinous times, and had not heard the dialogue between his daughters. My dear, you must ask Priscilla, he said, in the once firm voice, now become rather broken. She manages me and the farm too." "'And reason good as I should manage you, father,' said Priscilla, "'else you'd be giving yourself your death with rheumatism. "'And as for the farm, if anything turns out wrong, "'as it can't but do in these times, "'there's nothing kills a man so soon "'as having nobody to find fault with but himself. "'It's a deal the best way of being master, "'to let somebody else do the ordering "'and keep the blaming in your own hands. "'It'd save many a man a stroke, I believe.' Well, well, my dear, said her father, with a quiet laugh. I didn't say you don't manage for everybody's good. Then manage so as you may stay tea, Priscilla, said Nancy, putting her hand on her sister's arm affectionately. Come now, and we'll go round the garden while father has his nap. My dear child, he'll have a beautiful nap in the gig, for I shall drive. And as for staying tea, I can't hear of it. For there's this dairymaid. Now she knows she's to be married, turned miss. She does leaf-pour the new milk into the pig-trough as into the pans. That's the way with them all. It's as if they thought the world'd be new-made because they're to be married. So come and let me put my bonnet on, and there'll be time for us to walk round the garden while the horse is being put in. When the sisters were treading the neatly swept garden-walks, between the bright turf that contrasted pleasantly with the dark cones and arches and wall-like hedges of yew, Priscilla said, I'm as glad as anything at your husband's making that exchange of land with Cousin Osgood and beginning the dairying. It's a thousand pities you didn't do it before, for it'll give you something to fill your mind. There's nothing like a dairy if folks want a bit of worrit to make the days pass. For as for rubbing furniture— when you can once see your face in a table, there's nothing else to look for. But there's always something fresh with the dairy, for even in the depths of winter there's some pleasure in conquering the butter, and making it come whether or no. My dear," added Priscilla, pressing her sister's hand affectionately as they walked side by side, "you'll never be low when you've got a dairy." "Ah, Priscilla," said Nancy. "'returning the pressure with a grateful glance of her clear eyes. "'But it won't make up to Godfrey. "'A dairy's not so much to a man. "'And it's only what he cares for that ever makes me low. "'I'm contented with the blessings we have, "'if he could be contented.' "'It drives me past patience,' said Priscilla, impetuously. "'That way of the men, always wanting and wanting, "'and never easy with what they've got.' They can't sit comfortable in their chairs when they've got neither ache nor pain, but either they must stick a pipe in their mouths to make em better than well, or else they must be swallowing something strong, though they're forced to make haste before the next meal comes in. But joyful be it spoken, our father was never that sort of man. And if it had pleased God to make you ugly, like me, so as the men wouldn't a run after you, we might have kept to our own family— "'and had nothing to do with folks "'as have got uneasy blood in their veins. "'Oh, don't say so, Priscilla,' said Nancy, "'repenting that she had called forth this outburst. "'Nobody has any occasion to find fault with Godfrey. "'It's natural he should be disappointed "'at not having any children. "'Every man likes to have somebody to work for "'and lay by for, "'and he always counted so on making a fuss with them "'when they were little.' There's many another man at Hanker more than he does. he's the best of husbands, Oh, I know, said Priscilla, smiling sarcastically. I know the way o wives they set one to abuse their husbands, and then they turn round on one and praise em as if they wanted to sell him. But Father'll be waiting for me. We must turn now. The large gig with the steady old gray was at the front door and Mr. Lammeter was already on the stone steps, passing the time in recalling to Godfrey what very fine points Speckle had when his master used to ride him. "'I always would have a good horse, you know,' said the old gentleman, not liking that spirited time to be quite effaced from the memory of his juniors. "'Mind you, bring Nancy to the Warrens before the week's out, Mr. Cass,' was Priscilla's parting injunction, as she took the reins and shook them gently, by way of friendly incitement, to Speckle. "'I shall just take a turn to the fields against the stone pits, Nancy, and look at the draining,' said Godfrey. "'You'll be in again by tea-time, dear?' "'Oh, yes. I shall be back in an hour.' It was Godfrey's custom on a Sunday afternoon to do a little contemplative farming in a leisurely walk. Nancy seldom accompanied him, for the women of her generation— Unless, like Priscilla, they took to outdoor management, were not given to much walking beyond their own house and garden, finding sufficient exercise in domestic duties. So, when Priscilla was not with her, she usually sat with Mance Bible before her, and after following the text with her eyes for a little while, she would gradually permit them to wander as her thoughts had already insisted on wandering." but Nancy's Sunday thoughts were rarely quite out of keeping with the devout and reverential intention implied by the book spread open before her. She was not theologically instructed enough to discern very clearly the relation between the sacred documents of the past, which she opened without method, and her own obscure, simple life. But the spirit of rectitude, and the sense of responsibility for the effect of her conduct on others, which were strong elements in Nancy's character had made it a habit with her to scrutinize her past feelings and actions with self-questioning solicitude. Her mind not being courted by a great variety of subjects, she filled the vacant moments by living inwardly, again and again, through all her remembered experience, especially through the fifteen years of her married time, in which her life and its significance had been doubled. She recalled the small details, the words, tones, and looks, in the critical scenes which had opened a new epic for her, by giving her a deeper insight into the relations and trials of life, or which had called on her for some little effort of forbearance, or of painful adherence to an imagined or real duty, asking herself continually whether she had been, in any respect, blamable. This excessive rumination and self-questioning is perhaps a morbid habit inevitable to a mind of much moral sensibility, when shut out from its due share of outward activity and of practical claims on its affections. Inevitable to a noble-hearted, childless woman, when her lot is narrow. I can do so little. Have I done it all well, is the perpetually recurring thought and there are no voices calling her away from that soliloquy, no peremptory demands to divert energy from vain regret or superfluous scruple. There was one main thread of painful experience in Nancy's married life, and on it hung certain deeply felt scenes, which were the oftenest revived in retrospect. The short dialogue with Priscilla in the garden had determined the current of retrospect in that frequent direction this particular Sunday afternoon. The first wandering of her thought from the text, which she still attempted dutifully to follow with her eyes and silent lips, was into an imaginary enlargement of the defence she had set up for her husband against Priscilla's implied blame. The vindication of the loved object is the best balm affection can find for its wounds. A man must have so much on his mind, is the belief by which a wife often supports a cheerful face under rough answers and unfeeling words. And Nancy's deepest wounds had all come from the perception that the absence of children from their hearth was dwelt on in her husband's mind as a privation to which he could not reconcile himself yet sweet Nancy might have been expected to feel still more keenly the denial of a blessing to which she had looked forward with all the varied expectations and preparations, solemn and prettily trivial, which fill the mind of a loving woman when she expects to become a mother. Was there not a drawer filled with the neat work of her hands, all unworn and untouched, just as she arranged it there fourteen years ago, just, but for one little dress, which had been made the burial dress. But under this immediate personal trial, Nancy was so firmly unmurmuring that years ago she had suddenly renounced the habit of visiting this drawer, lest she should in this way be cherishing a longing for what was not given. Perhaps it was this very severity towards any indulgence of what she held to be sinful regret in herself— that made her shrink from applying her own standard to her husband. It is very different. It is much worse for a man to be disappointed in that way. A woman can always be satisfied with devoting herself to her husband. But a man wants something that will make him look forward more. And sitting by the fire is so much duller to him than to a woman. And always, when Nancy reached this point in her meditations... Trying, with predetermined sympathy, to see everything as Godfrey saw it, there came a renewal of self-questioning. Had she done everything in her power to lighten Godfrey's privation? Had she really been right in the resistance which had cost her so much pain six years ago, and again four years ago, the resistance to her husband's wish that they should adopt a child? Adoption was more remote from the ideas and habits of that time than of our own. Still, Nancy had her opinion on it. It was as necessary to her mind to have an opinion on all topics, not exclusively masculine, that had come under her notice, as for her to have a precisely marked place for every article of her personal property. And her opinions were always principles to be unwaveringly acted on. They were firm— not because of their basis, but because she held them with a tenacity inseparable from her mental action. On all the duties and proprieties of life, from filial behavior to the arrangements of the evening toilette, pretty Nancy Lameter, by the time she was three and twenty, had her unalterable little code, and had formed every one of her habits in strict accordance with that code." she carried these decided judgments within her in the most unobtrusive way. They rooted themselves in her mind, and grew there as quietly as grass. Years ago, we know, she insisted on dressing like Priscilla, because it was right for sisters to dress alike, and because she would do what was right if she wore a gown dyed with cheese coloring. That was a trivial but typical instance of the mode in which Nancy's life was regulated. It was one of those rigid principles, and no petty egoistic feeling, which had been the ground of Nancy's difficult resistance to her husband's wish. To adopt a child, because children of your own had been denied you, was to try and choose your lot in spite of providence. The adopted child, she was convinced, would never turn out well, and would be a curse to those who had willfully and rebelliously sought what it was clear that, for some high reason— they were better without. When you saw a thing was not meant to be, said Nancy, it was a bounden duty to leave off so much as wishing for it. And so far, perhaps, the wisest of men could scarcely make more than a verbal improvement in her principle. But the conditions under which she held it apparent that a thing was not meant to be depended on a more peculiar mode of thinking— She would have given up making a purchase at a particular place if, on three successive times, rain or some other cause of heaven-sending had formed an obstacle, and she would have anticipated a broken limb or other heavy misfortune to anyone who persisted in spite of such indications. "'But why should you think the child would turn out ill?' said Godfrey, in his remonstrances. "'She has thriven as well as child can do with the weaver,' "'and he adopted her. "'There isn't such a pretty little girl "'anywhere else in the parish, "'or one fitter for the station we could give her. "'Where can be the likelihood "'of her being a curse to anybody?' "'Yes, my dear Godfrey,' said Nancy, "'who was sitting with her hands "'tightly clasped together "'and with yearning, regretful affection in her eyes. "'The child may not turn out ill with the weaver, "'but then he didn't go to seek her,' as we should be doing. It will be wrong. I feel sure it will. Don't you remember what the lady we met at the Royston Baths told us about the child her sister adopted? That was the only adopting I ever heard of, and the child was transported when it was twenty-three. Dear Godfrey, don't ask me to do what I know is wrong. I should never be happy again. I know it's very hard for you. It's easier for me." But it's the will of Providence.' It might seem singular that Nancy, with her religious theory pieced together out of narrow social traditions, fragments of church doctrine imperfectly understood, and girlish reasonings on her small experience, should have arrived by herself at a way of thinking so nearly akin to that of many devout people, whose beliefs are held in the shape of a system quite remote from her knowledge. Singular! if we did not know that human beliefs, like all other natural growths, elude the barriers of system. Godfrey had from the first specified Epi, then about twelve years old, as a child suitable for them to adopt. It had never occurred to him that Silas would rather part with his life than with Epi. Surely the weaver would wish the best to the child he had taken so much trouble with— and would be glad that such good fortune should happen to her. She would always be grateful to him, and he would be well provided for to the end of his life, provided for as the excellent part he had done by the child deserved. Was it not an appropriate thing for people in a higher station to take a charge off the hands of a man in a lower? It seemed an eminently appropriate thing to Godfrey, for reasons that were known only to himself." and by a common fallacy he imagined the measure would be easy, because he had private motives for desiring it. This was rather a coarse mode of estimating Silas's relation to Epi. But we must remember that many of the impressions which Godfrey was likely to gather concerning the laboring people around him would favor the idea that deep affections can hardly go along with callous palms and scant means. And he had not had the opportunity— even if he had had the power, of entering intimately into all that was exceptional in the weaver's experience. It was only the want of adequate knowledge that could have made it possible for Godfrey deliberately to entertain an unfeeling project. His natural kindness had outlived that blighting time of cruel wishes, and Nancy's praise of him as a husband was not founded entirely on a willful illusion. I was right, she said to herself, when she had recalled all their scenes of discussion. "'I feel I was right to say him nay, though it hurt me more than anything. But how good Godfrey has been about it. Many men would have been very angry with me for standing against their wishes, and they might have thrown out that they'd had ill luck in marrying me. But Godfrey has never been the man to say me an unkind word. It's only what he can't hide.' "'Everything seems so blank to him, I know. "'And the land. "'What a difference it'd make to him "'when he goes to see after things, "'if he'd children growing up that he was doing it all for. "'But I won't murmur. "'And perhaps if he'd married a woman "'who'd have had children, "'she'd have vexed him in other ways. "'This possibility was Nancy's chief comfort.' And to give it greater strength she labored to make it impossible that any other wife should have had more perfect tenderness. She had been forced to vex him by that one denial. Godfrey was not insensible to her loving effort, and did Nancy no injustice as to the motives of her obstinacy. It was impossible to have lived with her fifteen years and not be aware that an unselfish clinging to the right and a sincerity clear as the flower-born dew were her main characteristics. Indeed, Godfrey felt this so strongly that his own more wavering nature, too averse to facing difficulty to be unvaryingly simple and truthful, was kept in a certain awe of this gentle wife, who watched his looks with a yearning to obey them. It seemed to him impossible that he should ever confess to her the truth about Eppy. She would never recover from the repulsion the story of his earlier marriage would create, told to her now, after that long concealment. And the child, too, he thought, must become an object of repulsion. The very sight of her would be painful. The shock to Nancy's mingled pride and ignorance of the world's evil might even be too much for her delicate frame. Since he had married her with that secret on his heart, he must keep it there to the last— Whatever else he did, he could not make an irreparable breach between himself and this long-loved wife. Meanwhile, why could he not make up his mind to the absence of children from a hearth brightened by such a wife? Why did his mind fly uneasily to that void, as if it were the sole reason why life was not thoroughly joyous to him? I suppose it is the way with all men and women who reach middle age without the clear perception that life never can be thoroughly joyous. Under the vague dullness of the gray hours, dissatisfaction seeks a definite object, and finds it in the privation of an untried good. Dissatisfaction seated musingly on a childless hearth thinks with envy of the father whose return is greeted by young voices. Seated at the meal where the little heads rise one above another like nursery plants, it sees a black care hovering behind every one of them, and thinks the impulses by which men abandon freedom and seek for ties are surely nothing but a brief madness. In Godfrey's case, there were further reasons why his thoughts should be continually solicited by this one point in his lot. His conscience, never thoroughly easy about Epi, now gave his childless home the aspect of a retribution. And as the time passed on, under Nancy's refusal to adopt her, any retrieval of his error became more and more difficult. On this Sunday afternoon, it was already four years since there had been any allusion to the subject between them, and Nancy supposed that it was forever buried. I wonder if he'll mind it less or more as he gets older, she thought. I'm afraid more. Aged people feel the miss of children, "'What would father do without Priscilla? "'And if I die, Godfrey will be very lonely, "'not holding together with his brothers much. "'But I won't be over-anxious, "'and trying to make things out beforehand. "'I must do my best for the present.' "'With that last thought, Nancy roused herself from her reverie, "'and turned her eyes again towards the forsaken page. "'It had been forsaken longer than she imagined,' for she was presently surprised by the appearance of the servant with her tea things it was in fact a little before the usual time for tea but jane had her reasons is your master come into the yard jane no he isn't said jane with a slight emphasis of which however her mistress took no notice i don't know whether you've seen him continued jane after a pause "'but there's folks making haste all one way afore the front window. "'I doubt something's happened. "'There's never a man to be seen in the yard, else I'd send and see. "'I've been up into the top attic, but there's no seeing anything for trees. "'I hope nobody's hurt, that's all.' "'Oh, no, I dare say there's nothing much the matter,' said Nancy. "'It's perhaps Mr. Snell's bull got out again, as he did before.' I wish he mayn't gore anybody then, that's all, said Jane, not altogether despising a hypothesis which covered a few imaginary calamities. That girl is always terrifying me, thought Nancy. I wish Godfrey would come in. She went to the front window and looked as far as she could see along the road, with an uneasiness which she felt to be childish, for there were now no such signs of excitement as Jane had spoken of and Godfrey would not be likely to return by the village road, but by the fields. She continued to stand, however, looking at the placid churchyard with the long shadows of the gravestones across the bright green hillocks and the glowing autumn colors of the rectory trees beyond. Before such calm external beauty, the presence of a vague fear is more distinctly felt, like a raven flapping its slow wing across the sunny air." Nancy wished more and more that Godfrey would come in.